Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book four of The Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass. We'll talk about the argument section, the prologue, and begin part one, Riddles, chapters one through three. Let's start the show. Well, after a recap of the first three books in the series by Stephen King, in the argument section, which is argument uh, and misspelled in my edition with an extra E, King starts this fourth book with a prologue that repeats the final pages of book three. When we finally get to new material in part one, the Cotet engages with Blaine the Mono in the Riddle Contest. Jay, we're on to our fourth book in the series. Exciting stuff. Yes, it's very exciting. Thank you, everyone who's made it this far. We are glad you are part of our Cotet, and we look forward to making the rest of the way through this journey uh, with us. So we're going to talk a little bit as we do when we get to a new book of where does this book fit in into the larger context. And I know one of the big things is something that, Jay, uh, you had to deal with, but I didn't have to deal with so much, and that is that the original publication of of the third book was August of 1991, and this Mm -hmm. book, Wizard in Class, didn't come out until November of 1997. So there was a long six years of wondering what on earth is happening with the Cotet and Blaine. And for me, it was only a week's in between when I, fin- <laughs> when I finished book three and when I picked up this book. So I was like, all right, let's see what happens. But I would imagine for people like you and other readers, it was a long wait. That must have been an interminable six years between books. It was. It was a struggle. And that was the time period that I found a chance to come back to books one, two, and three two more times. And also, I read just about every other Stephen King book that I could get my hands on in, in that time period. I never got to the point of doubting that another book would come out. I didn't feel like King was totally lost in this story or it was totally blocked from it. I I wasn't getting those George R. R. Martin feelings deep down in my heart yet. (laughs) Um, But I did have a chance to read some of the other books that he published in between. Um, I read Needful Things. I read Gerald's Game. I read Dolores Claiborne. And um, one of the other... uh, interesting books that I, I was a big fan of at the time was Green Mile. And I reread that book a couple times, but it was a long way to go. And I remember running to the bookstore the day that book four was published and buying it immediately because you know it was announced ahead of time and I knew when it was going to come out. And I was super anxious to get my hands on the next part of the story. Yep. So th- it's interesting. You mentioned some of the other books, you know, it, unlike a George R. R. Martin situation, King was actually publishing quite a bit between yeah. these books. So uh, you had mentioned Needful Things, Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, Insomnia, Rose Matter, Green Mile, and then the dual Desperation Regulators double books that are very much Dark Tower related from my understanding. Those are two that I have not read. I have not read Insomnia. Um but I think I read some of those books when they came out. Uh, this is interesting because this is right when I was in grad school. So a lot of my pleasure reading dropped off in the 
90, you know, I was in, in undergrad and grad school, like from basically this whole period. So a lot of my pleasure reading dropped off here. So I read a couple of these, but not all of them when they were originally published. I don't understand why I didn't have time to read all of these <laughs> Stephen King books, many of which were pushing a thousand pages themselves. Yes. So this book, I was just doing a little research before we got on the show today, um, actually only ended up taking King six months to write. And this is the longest of the Dark Tower books, I believe. Um, and ironically, he thought it would be the shortest. He gave a speech at the University of Maine and said, oh, I figure that Blaine's going to crash and they're all going to die and that'll be the end of that. But <laughs> <laughs> That's I, an easy way to wrap up the story. <laughs> there you go. Um, so also in between this book, just sort of you, you can place this, there is a ton of Stephen King related movies in this time period. Yeah. Uh, and as I'm going to mention them, you're going to be like, oof, ah, this is bad. So <laughs> we got The Lawnmower Man, which eventually Stephen King successfully sued to have his name taken off of because despite uh, having uh, Jeff Fahey in it, it was not a good movie. Um, Sleepwalkers, which he wrote the screenplay for, I saw in the theaters and was disgusted by how horrible that movie was. If only it had Jeff Fahey in it, <laughs> yes. maybe it would have been better. Um, Pet Cemetery 2, so not the good one. Um, Children of the Corn 2, 3, <laughs> and, two, three and 4. Yeah, there was, there was room in that single year for three sequels. <laughs> I, I think some of those might have been direct to video at some point, but not mm. not great. Uh, the Dark Half, which was filmed at my wife's college, and uh, she had friends who had, you could see in the background, walking across the quad. So that was a decent movie. Needful Things. I really liked that movie. Yeah. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, top of the internet movie database boards for a favorite user movie of constantly in the top one or two. Cool. The Mangler, and not so much. Uh, Dolores Claiborne, Lawnmower Man 2, which, you know, <laughs> surprisingly had a sequel made. Um, some and in the same year, because everyone was in such a hurry to see more Lawnmower Man movies. Uh, sometimes they come back again, which we talked about sometimes they come back previously, which is a short story, and sometimes they come back again. Um, Thinner, which I really liked the... Bachman book, but I have never seen that movie. It's probably interesting to see. And then The Night Flyer. And I want to say The Night Flyer had Jose Ferreira in it. And I want to take this opportunity to make a correction to a previous episode when we conflated the trash can man and Lloyd Heinrich in the Stand novel. And I confused who was actually in the jail and gets freed by Randall Flagg in The Stand, which 15-year-old um, Sean, who had read The Stand multiple, multiple times, would be really mad at current Sean. So, uh, sorry for that. Thank you to our listeners for pointing that out. There was multiple people who said, hey, yeah, I was yelling at the podcast because you got that wrong. So, mm -hmm. that just tells me that after I finish this Dark Tower podcast, we need to jump into The Stand for a Stand podcast, and I can re-familiarize myself with that book. Well, it's a Dark Tower adjacent story, so there's no reason why we couldn't jump into that for an episode or two. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, After we finish the Dark Tower yes, books. And that's going to still take us a while, listener, so no worries there. Um, Stephen King, this was also when there were a number of miniseries published on his books. 
And I think he had a deal with ABC at the time. So Tommy Knocker starring the one and only Jimmy Smith's awful, awful stuff. Uh, the, the stand, the stand miniseries, which, um, I liked at the time, but looking back, it's probably not the best of, of ways to adapt that. Um, I think in our, our, our current prestige golden age of television, we would look back on that and say, oh, it could be done so much better on HBO. But it, it introduced the world to Gary Sinise. That is true. Lieutenant Dan. Um, the Langoliers, awful. Might also have had Jose Ferrer in it. Um, <laughs> Are we just going to assume Jose Ferrer is in one out of three Stephen King adaptations? Hey, man, you could do worse. And we should also you mention could. the late, great Jose Ferrer. Right? That's he just, right. He just passed away earlier this year so. Um, the Shining with TV's Steven Weber from Wings, as we've mentioned before on this podcast. Um, I don't, I don't know why Steven Weber makes me laugh, but <laughs> I chuckle every time you mention him. Um, Trucks, which I think was a new adaptation of the truck short story by Stephen King, which Stephen King himself directed in Maximum Overdrive, and which was recently shown on a, I think it was a vulture list of the. Stephen King movies ranked as the worst Stephen King movie ranked. So, oh wow, yay, Even worse than Lawnmower Man. Huh? Yeah, yay, Maximum Overdrive. Um, and then Quicksilver Highway, which I was not aware of until I was doing some research on this, and that is a two short stories, one by Stephen King and one by Clive Barker. So, uh, for Clive Barker and King fans, that might be worth checking out. I don't know anything. Do you about know which Clive Barker story is involved in that? Is it like Chattery Teeth or something? I think, no, that's Stephen King. I think the Chattery Teeth is the Stephen King one. I'm not sure what the Clive Barker one was. Um, the other interesting thing about this book that I wanted to point out is that we've got a new illustrator, as we do for um, each of the first four books. Uh, the illustrator for Wizard in Glass is Dave McKean. Um, and Dave McKean is best known probably for doing all the covers for the Sandman graphic novels by Neil Gaiman. And Dave McKean has also done Cages, is an, a, a work that he did by himself that's really good. Uh, he did the art for Arkham Asylum, which is a pretty famous Joker Batman story that you might be able to check out. And he's done a lot of other art for comics, graphic novels, but then also a lot of record covers as well. So um, he has a very unique art style he does a lot of photo collage in this book as opposed to the straight mixed media right? yeah the mixed media as opposed to the straight up illustrations that have been done in some of the other ones not quite as pulpy as i think we've seen in the first three books he also does the pencil illustrations in the chapter sections as well as the illustrations and if you have a first hardcover edition of wizard and cages You've got 18 of his illustrations, whereas there are only 12 published in the later editions, including- I think you mean Wizard in Glass, right? I'm sorry, Wizard in Glass, yeah. So 18 illustrations in the first hardcover version of Wizard in Glass, and then only 12 in the later editions, such as the Plume Trade Paperback, which is what I am reading on this occasion. And for those reading on Kindle, you probably do not have illustrations at all. Wah, wah. All right, so that's sort of a long lead-in, but you'll forgive us because Stephen King himself had a long lead into this book. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we've got argument spelled wrong in my edition. Jay, you've said in the editions that you've been looking at that they fixed that, that it's spelled the correct way and that argument does not have that A-R-G-U 
extra E M E N T in it. That's correct. I have the the seven books that were published at the time that the seventh book was published. And I don't know if it's the most recent edition, but it's the first edition when all seven books existed. And it's it's corrected there. And the Kindle, of course, is corrected. Yeah. So I'm not sure why mine has that with the extra E, but I thought it was interesting. So anyhow, to to my bigger point, though, we've got a long lead in before we actually get to the action in this story. We've got King's Argument, which is a recap of the first three books, and it's recapped in more detail than has been in his previous recaps. Um, And then we've got a prologue about Blaine that's 10 pages in mine, and it's almost identical to the last 10 pages of- Almost the way identical. Size. Yeah, almost identical. You did a little bit of uh, looking into that, Jay. Yeah, it was weird because since we were reading these books back to back, I had just finished reading these very same pages in book three to read them again the next day almost in book four. I noticed that King made some very subtle edits. So he took the time to repurpose this content and I guess run it through his, uh, you know, maybe six years older sensibilities and chuck out some a few phrases here and there. Um, but one thing that stood out to me that was because I really liked the language in the original was when uh, Roland is talking about how they kind of like broke the mold when they made him. And he had this extra line about how the sculptor's hands have done their work and the clay is set. And for whatever reason, King took out the whole part about the sculptor's hands when he's like, ah, oh, that's just how this is how I was made in my youth, and then like dropped the whole sculptor's hands and the clay part. And I thought, why would he change that? Yeah. It seemed nice. It doesn't seem to affect Roland's backstory in any way. It doesn't paint him as in a different light. Why even take the trouble or the time to remove that? He couldn't have been that desperate to shave off words here and there for <laughs> to, to meet some sort of publisher requirement. I mean, it's very at this rare point, for, he's like, hey, I'm Stephen King. I can write what I want. Very um, rare for King to cut stuff, yes. Yeah, and it's not like when we noticed in the first book when he went back and he took out references to paper because he then later said that paper is very rare in Midworld, and so he wanted to take out references to that. Like, I mean, that's the only thing that I could possibly think of that maybe Clay isn't quite as... But again, it's not important to the story, so why you know no one would notice it yeah. except for somebody who, like you, were reading it back to back. Yeah, and there was like another one where like he updated something that Jake said to make it maybe I don't know less anachronistic or maybe more anachronistic. I just he modernized some turn of phrase that Jake used. Very interesting. Well, what do you think also about the fact that he does do so much recapping here? You know, we've got the five to six pages of the prologue, we get the 10 pages of the Blaine. I mean, is he worried about the reader who hadn't read it for six years? Or does he think that there's new people jumping in and book four and he wants to bring them up to speed? Is is there more to it than just a previously on Game of Thrones, previously on Dark Tower? I mean, what's he doing here? It's a good question because I can't believe that even though you had to wait six years, it's not like it's impossible to go back and, I don't know, read the last 20 pages of the book. And I don't even say 20 pages because that happens to be about what he copied into this book. It's just like, as a reader of book four, you had access to book three and you probably didn't skip 
books one, two, and three right. and start in book four. So it kind of seems like unnecessary. Like, you know, it's like you don't need the previously on for a book, I, I feel. And we're the fourth book into the series here. We don't really need a recap. You've got a captive audience, I think, at this point. Yeah, it 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 is odd. It it's very very odd in my opinion, you know. I think we've talked before about how why does he break up the books the way he does even, you know? It mm-hmm. why why wasn't the Blaine stuff for you know, does he feel like he needs to it's almost like a, a, a scene before the credits to get the action going and he wants to build that out with uh, the previously on. I, it, it does seem odd to me. And it seemed more odd to me, like you said, reading it back to back where we had just read it a week earlier. And now we've got, oh, 20, 20 pages of recap. And, you know, at one point you and I had been discussing just covering the prologue as we moved into this book. And then we realized, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> We'll just be repeating exactly what we said last episode. Yeah, we can just copy the last uh, <laughs> 20 minutes of our podcast episode and yeah. make it a new one. Uh, we also noticed that the dedication of this book, as we talk about all this intro matter, also discusses how the time between the books and King dedicates this book to two of his assistants who are the ones who go through his mail, and they're the ones who get all of the... Uh, Hey, why aren't you writing more Dark Tower stuff? Where's the Dark Star stuff, King? Come on, write the Dark Tower stuff. And he says that Julie and Marsha nag me back to the word processor. Julie, you nag the most effectively, so your name comes first. So King is very aware of, yeah, I know, it's been a while, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's nice. I'm going to dedicate this book to you because you annoyed me so much. <laughs> Good times. Mm-hmm. All right. So the main thrust of these first three chapters then is Blaine. And Blaine is both a hindrance in that he's a block to them. He's, you know, he's threatening their lives and is going to kill them. But at the same time, he's also benefiting them in a great way because he is rushing them across the wastelands, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles that they would have been walking across. And we get Roland an opportunity to get closer to where he needs to be. But first, he has to defeat Blaine. And it's, I know you and I talked a little bit about this before about how when they were coming to Lud, it was like, oh, Eddie in particular was like, we're going to get so much help here and we're going to get on mm-hmm. our way to the Dark Tower. And, you know, Blaine is partially that, but not really. He's not really the ally that Eddie was hoping for in a lot of ways, but it looks like he could have been, right? Like, there's so much cool stuff about Blaine that. Yeah. Every time Blaine would like let slip some little nugget or just reveal either a capability of his of himself like oh i can do that or, or you know i can make you an ice sculpture here you go you know that that's such a mundane useless thing to these these travelers through midworld but he's also an artificial intelligence linked to a supercomputer that seems to have all of the knowledge and all of the technology of the great old ones and you know, the very people who created this incredible city of Lud, it's all at his disposal. Yep. And the possibilities are staggering to me. Like, what if Blaine weren't a petulant child that had gone insane and is just basically, you know, kidnapping them and threatening to kill them if they didn't do everything that he wanted to be pleased? What if he said, hey, guys, here you go. You know, what do you need to know? What information can I just tell you, like verbally <laughs> share with you to help you on your journey? Or how about 
here's this little like I don't know keyboard or something you know like iPod like device that you can hang from your <laughs> your waistband or around your neck that basically is like your hitchhiker's guide and and so it's like anytime you're like where am I what yep. is this place why is it the way it is you know is it important what can I find here what resources are available that sort of thing um, or you know like the the computer that the the little robot wore in Buck Rogers, you know, the robot was like just said beady 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 beady, but the computer was the, the medallion <laughs> hanging around his neck. Like that's what they needed. Blaine needed to download himself into the little medallion and let Eddie wear that around his neck, and he Eddie can say beady beady beady, and they'd be, be way ahead of the game. You've reduced so. Eddie down to Tweaky. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd get a kick out of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, it's not only just the information, but like, he's healing uh, mm -hmm. Jake. Jake's been um, bitten by Oi at some point, right? Isn't that when he's rescued? At, yeah. And, Oi grabbed his hand, hand the only way he could. Him. And all of a sudden, Jake's realizing, hey, my hand feels a lot better. He's like, oh, yeah. Blaine's just like, I'm healing you. It's like, whoa, can you grow fingers for Roland? Can you help? with legs for yeah for Susanna like what else you know where did the ice come from can you make us food because we're always hunting deer and it's getting boring eating lobstrosities all the time so if you can like cook up a steak that'd be some great stuff Blaine and you know what occurred to me they only ever were in the single cabin of the train like what, what was in the very next cabin behind them was there like some cache of incredible technology <laughs> oh, yeah. was there like you know uh, some endless supply of There's... shelf stable food like they never even looked no because we don't know that we know blaine was only a few cars long or whatever but we don't know that he's only one car right and because he's like look you're in the barony class this is the best part of the train <laughs> yeah. but it's not the only part of the train well, it, so, maybe it's more like Snowpiercer and like the back cars yeah. are just the scum of the earth just sort of <laughs> getting yeah. through. People fighting over uh, gelatin food. <laughs> Scraps. Bricks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Captain America trying to rescue them. Yep. Yeah. So Blaine's cool. I, I like the idea of Blaine, but unfortunately, it's the end of the line for Blaine because we move on to this riddle contest. And the riddle contest is interesting because King has set us up with the fact that Roland knows a lot of riddles. Court was the greatest yeah. riddle teller and, and answerer of all time. And Roland's remembered quite a few of these. And so he's got some of that knowledge. And then we're told that, you know, Jake's got this book that King has set up like, hey, he found this book. It seems related to the other book. And this might be helpful, but they do not help at all. And in fact, Blaine is able to answer all their riddles without much trouble at all. Yeah. I mean, with the data banks that Blaine has, he probably has a copy, you know, the full text of that riddle de dumb book in his memory. Right. So it's just like, okay, I know that riddle. Here's yep. your answer. You know? Yeah. His database is so advanced. He's like, oh yeah, that riddle comes from England on Jake's world. Or, you know, this mm -hmm. riddle is often told in other ways. So it's not even, you know, once, once he's doing that, you realize that his knowledge is so extensive that no matter what Roland may have heard. He only heard certain things in one city in one world, whereas Blaine's got this much broader set of knowledge. And then Eddie sort of goes into this weird trance throughout the riddle contest where he's very much shut out from everybody else and everyone's looking at him like, boy, Eddie's acting quiet and weird. And he's trying to figure out exactly what he's going to do. And he comes to the realization 
especially after Blaine makes a mistake early on and offers Jake some sexual experiences with Raquel Welsh and um, Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe and Edith Bunker. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. Edith Bunker's not quite in their league. I mean, I, I love Gene Stapleton as much as anybody else, but um, that's when they realize that, hey, he's made a mistake and he doesn't get any, and, and Blaine gets a little upset. And Eddie makes the connection between, hey, those dumb jokes that Roland hates because they don't make sense, mm-hmm. maybe that's what can finish off Blaine. Maybe those are the riddles he doesn't know. And it connects directly back, not to the book of riddles that Jake has, but to the Charlie the Choo Choo book, in which we're told that Charlie says, don't ask me silly questions, I won't play silly games. And that's what ends up killing Blaine, and, and, and Roland does this. Now, what did you think of the solution, Jay, both having read it years ago and then also just recently? I was expecting, and I think what the characters in the story were expecting is that eventually they're going to get to a riddle that Blaine can't solve. Like, oh, can't figure it out, but it's a fair riddle. It's and and that was the mistake that they kept making is that they're playing fair, and to be fair, the way Roland uh, you know defines riddles is that there's logic to them. Yeah. That once you once you see what the riddle is doing. There's an answer. There's always a way to solve the riddle, but they realize that that's their their downfall here because Blaine is the logical computer, and and you kind of made a, a point that this felt like a Star Trek episode, like from the original <laughs> series. Like all we need to do is trick the computer with some sort of thing that's not logic, and it will go into does not compute mode and then <laughs> short circuit. And that is literally what Blaine does. Yeah, he says does not compute and stuff starts breaking down and then Eddie pulls Roland's revolver and symbolically executes Blaine. Yep. Which now that I mentioned that, when did Eddie have Roland's revolver? Cause there are three guns amongst the the group, right? Correct. And it's always been Roland has one of the revolvers and Susanna has the other one. And Eddie's always had the automatic pistol that Jake stole from his father and brought into the world with him when he crossed over. So did Eddie like somewhere sometime during his deep concentration, half, half uh, thoughtful, half stupor think, <laughs> hold on a second. Let me trade guns with Susanna for a minute yeah. so that I can do this symbolic execution of Blaine. But all uh, cool with the flat, you know, pushing his hand flat on the tree. Yeah, it, it 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 looks cool, and I think that that might have been what King was going for. Is hey, this is an awesome visual as opposed to making logical sense in the confines of the stories. I think that it kind of needed to be Roland's gun that does this because Roland's gun is from this world, and Roland's gun seems to have not exactly magical powers, but it seems to be imbued with some sort of. Um, I don't know. They even it, it's historic nature. Like this is an ancient gun that's been passed down from father to son gunslinger for generations upon generations. And I think if it were just like some, you know, factory made pistol from a United States gun company that Elmer Chambers bought <laughs> to keep in his his home office, it wouldn't work. Not just for the symbolism, but I think like the the power of Roland's gun would be missing. The in world power that that it has. Right. That, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, you know, I did say that it did, you know, the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like a 
original Star Trek level solution to the problem. Um, in the Bev Vincent Road to the Dark Tower book, he mentions that our first clue that the riddle book wasn't going to help was that maybe the answers that the answers had been pulled out of the back. And I had been sort of justifying in my mind, like, oh, they're going to get to a riddle that Blaine's not going to know, but they're not going to know the answer to either because it's it's yeah. not in the back of the book. And that's going to be the impasse that they come to that maybe they they both are fighting over what's the real answer because there's a disagreement there. Um, but Bev's analysis of it was, oh, no, the fact that there weren't any answers in there should have been our first clue that the answers you're looking for are not in this book. They lie out elsewhere, which is a fair enough reading. Cool. Again, the more I think about it, I don't know if I like the fact that it's Eddie's dumb jokes that that are the payoff. I do like when he gets to the end and he's finishing off Blaine, he says, I shoot with my mind, you know, the part of yeah. the gun. I mean, that's sort of cool, right? Like he is using the gun, but at the same time, it's what's what's actually killing Blaine is is the mind bullets that, that Eddie is throwing at him and that yeah. Blaine is unable to... Uh, and- any part of the or any time the gunslinger creed comes into play, it's it's usually an awesome moment. Yeah, you know, kind of getting a little goosebumps right now just talking about it. So. It's like whenever Queen comes out and plays "We Will Rock You," right? Like you know, it's a crowd pleaser. The crowd's going to go wild. So anytime King needs, you know, there's a little lull in the action. King's like, "Oh, I'm going to throw the gunslinger's creed in there. That'll get uh-huh. the, that'll get the crowd on their feet." <laughs> That'll get Jay to wait six years for another book to come yeah, out. I'll just put the Gunslinger's Sucker. Creed in the first 20 pages and all will be forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the other sort of interesting, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, that Henry's voice comes back to Eddie in this portion. So we thought we had put uh, Henry's voice to rest, but it's mm-hmm. actually Henry coming back and we get this nice sweet moment when Eddie's recalling when he was a youth. And Henry's gang of kids were all talking about like, oh, if you were in a fight, who would you have on your side? And all the kids in the neighborhood are picking who they think are the toughest, baddest, meanest kids in the neighborhood. And Henry says, I'd pick Eddie because I know he'd always have my back. And this is one of the few times when Henry's voice comes into his head and is not denigrating him, but instead encouraging him. And that seems to be what helps Eddie take this final leap and make that connection and not feel like, oh, I don't know the riddles like everybody else, or I have a stupid idea. It's more like, hey, I can do this. So, I think this was a really important moment for Eddie in that it gave us a further insight into, like we've talked about in the past, that how Eddie always loved Henry. And that was to Eddie's detriment because Henry was a pretty shitty person. Yep. And we never really understood why, except for the fact that they were brothers. It was hard for us looking at from the outside. It's like, why does anybody put up with this? Why does Eddie not only put up with this, why does he love this guy? Mm. And I think it's, unfortunately, I, I think that this happens with a lot of people who are abused in some way. There's often just enough love shown to keep you coming back for more abuse. And this was a moment, this was like the high point of Eddie's childhood when his brother gave him not only... Um, not only a compliment, but like true admiration. Yeah. Like it was validation. It was affirmation. It was picking out the best piece of Eddie and saying, this is what I love about you. And while, even though all these kids might laugh at you, I know that it's true that you would have my back. And it wasn't like when they were just the two of them talking to each other and, and, you know, Henry said, yeah, I'd, I'd always pick you in a fight. He did it in front of 
his friends, the people who he cares the most about what they think. And he that didn't yep. bother him. That didn't make him hesitate at all. He spoke his mind. He said how he felt. And how he felt was, my brother will destroy anybody if it meant I was in trouble. Yep. And he's kind of right. We saw the lengths that Eddie has gone and even the, the, the depths that he has sunk to in attempt to keep his brother healthy and alive and safe. So I think this was a moment that it gave us a little bit of further development for Eddie to just see like, this is why he's so devoted to Henry. Mm-hmm. Because Henry did things like this, maybe only once or twice in his life, but they were big enough moments that they stuck. Yep. And it's also interesting that Henry as a character is somebody who first we only saw through Eddie's memories, then we saw through Eddie's memories of like struggling against him. And now the memory version of Henry has actually had character development. Yeah. He's gone from being this sort of wishy-washy, uh, you know, kind of lousy person to being an utter shit to being like a source of strength. Yeah. And so this memory character has had a, a pretty decent character arc over the course of a few books. So that's kind of impressive. That is. Probably more character development than Susanna. Ooh, so I was just about to get to that. So this, I know people are like, you guys keep riding on this so much, but you know, it's it's just so disappointing that here we get a scene and it seems like everyone's got a role to play and you know, it's okay, Roland's going to do all the riddles that Court knew and, and, and hopefully one of those will stump him because Court was the best Riddler and hey, if worse comes to worse, you know, Jake, you've got the book and you uh-huh. know, Eddie's the one who ends up... At doing the killing blow with his stupid jokes. And it's like, oh, Susanna, can you just tell a couple of riddles to start off and then just sort of sit there nice? Like, Ooh, yeah, can you just warm Susanna up the crowd just, for, for the, the actual yeah, right, star like, of the show? Right. Yeah. We're not going to have the cameras on you yet, but if you could just, you know, do a couple of jokes, get the audience going, explain when to clap, etc. It's just disappointing that she's just sort of sidelined here. And the only time we see her is She's holding Roland's hand and she's looking at Eddie and it's like, oh, can't we give Susanna something more to do? Yeah, it is kind of a bummer. I mean, what are we going to do? Um, the other thing about this is, I think this is the section that we've pointed out that Susanna talks about her reluctant love for Roland. Yeah. And we've talked a little bit before about how we don't see how Susanna is necessarily making the, these jumps as to why is this tower so important to her? Uh-huh. You know, how does she have love for Roland? There hasn't been so much interaction between the two of them that they would fall in love. Um, so it's just, I, I want to see more Susanna. I didn't like the fact that King goes to the length of saying that Susanna has a reluctant love for Roland because Roland saved Eddie and she loves Eddie. And I, I was insulted by this. Why would loving somebody because they did something nice for somebody. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I don't want that to be the only reason or the the biggest reason. If King hadn't had that sentence in the book and just said, Susanna has a reluctant love for Roland, I think leaving it at that is enough because we have been together we've we've been together with these characters. We've seen how they've come to trust each other. We've seen how they've come to know each other more and more. We've seen how they come to respect each other and learn from each other and depend on each other. That's why she has these feelings for Roland. It's in the text already. We don't need to be hammered over the head with a lame explanation about like tangential affection because, you know, 
Roland helped the person that she's in love with, and therefore she has to love Roland by the, uh, um, what am I thinking? Oh, yeah, transitive. The transitive theory, yeah. By the transitive property of love, Roland saved Eddie, she loves Eddie, therefore she loves Roland. Like, that's, yeah. that's dumb. Yeah, it is. So we get to the end of the riddle contest. Blaine loses. The the train comes to a screeching halt. All of our quartet has survived. Blaine has not. And there's this interesting um, exchange between Eddie and Roland. Um, you know, Roland says, I'm sorry for holding your jokes in contempt. I was very wrong. I've forgotten the face of my father. And Eddie says, you don't need any pardon and you didn't forget anybody's face. You can't help your nature, Roland. Mm-hmm. The gunslinger considered this carefully and discovered something which was wonderful and awful at the same time. That idea had never occurred to him, not once in his whole life, that he was a captive of Ka. This he had known since earliest childhood, but his nature, his very nature, thank you, Eddie, I think, and then it sort of goes off there. But that, that interesting piece where Roland has never thought about the difference between Ka, which seems to be almost fate versus mm-hmm. nature, which is something innate in him. Right. It's like internal versus external influences on on who he is and what he's going to do or can't help but do. Yeah. So, you know, this whole time, you know, I think Roland has sort of given himself to fate. He realizes he has some influence on it, but he's just playing a role in this game in his, not, not game, but in, in this, this is what I have to do. This is why I have to do it. And it's not necessarily free will. And that's why I was okay in letting Jake go the first time. And that's why mm-hmm. even if something happens to Jake and I promised I'll, I, I'd save him again, I don't know. Because if the tower calls me, I'm going to go with the tower. And there's all this. But now he's starting to realize like, well, maybe the reason for this isn't just Ka. Maybe I do have more of an influence than I thought on it. So it'll be interesting to see if that plays out in the rest of this book and series, if if that becomes a bigger piece. Because it seems to be here that it, it it stuck out for both of us as something that was notable. Yeah. All right, Jay, it's that time again. Fun stuff. I already stepped on my toes a little bit with my fun stuff. Edith Bunker. <laughs> Back to my grad school days, my wife and I used to watch All in the Family because it was one of the very few TV channels on uh, in our apartment in grad school. And one of the things that was on a lot was All in the Family rerun. So my wife and I got to know Edith Bunker very well, I'm sure. There's a lot of you out there who have no idea what All in the Family is, but Edith Bunker was cool. I have no relationship to that show. I know of it. I know who's in it. I know about how it had some really strong cultural influences, but I don't think I ever watched a full episode. You should. It's good stuff. Yeah. What do you got for fun stuff, Jay? Um, I liked the uh, possible Spaceballs reference when Eddie <laughs> pronounces merchandise as merchandise. <laughs> And we looked at the timeline, and I think that Spaceballs was out just before Eddie got yanked into Roland's world. So that, it's that possible that he that Eddie had seen that movie. Now, of course, it wasn't Spaceballs or Mel Brooks who invented speaking in that way, <laughs> but I think maybe it could have been more of a pop culture thing, the merchandising. Who knew that Eddie, in his heroin-induced stupor could see so many movies and make reference to them. but And read so many books and learn so many yeah. languages. <laughs> well, there you go. So, um, 
Blaine makes a, a cutting aside at some point when Roland is trying to get extra time. And he says, you know, we could think of more riddles. Just give us some more time. And he says, oh, no, you're, you're trying to pull some uh, Thousand and One Nights bullshit on us. And, and he mentions, I'm going to get the Sherazad. Sherazad. And when he mentions Sherazad, he's like, oh, and Roland has no idea who that is and just sort of looks around and Blaine says, oh, Susanna would know. And perhaps even Eddie. And I'm like, yeah, I think Eddie probably would know because he knows Shardick and he knows other obscure writing. Yeah. You know, Thomas Wolfe, you can't go home again. I bet he knows A Thousand and One Nights, Blaine. Don't mm -hmm. worry. He could probably name all 1,001 of the knights. <laughs> oh. I know they're not knights. They're knights as in good night. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> uh, oh, and the, uh, the other fun thing that I really liked was that after Eddie emptied the revolver into Blaine and finished him off. He had the classic action hero one-liner, and I could just picture Stallone or Schwarzenegger <laughs> saying, "Your goose is cooked and your turkey's baked. Happy fucking Thanksgiving." Your I mean, goose is cooked and your turkey's baked. <laughs> like it goes on. It's like that's why it's such a action hero one-liner. It's way too long. Yeah. You shouldn't have said anything, but it's like just like a whole paragraph of like take that sucker. Then he steps on it later on because the whole chapter ends with him saying as they climb out of Blaine and and into the world Eddie says, adios, Blaine. So long, partner. And it's like, oh, come on, Eddie. One yeah. You got to stop at happy fucking Thanksgiving yeah, and just yeah. walk away. Right. Stop it. <laughs> you, you, you know, Bruce Willis had yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. He didn't keep going with other ones. You know, you pick one and you go with it. You're ruining your mm -hmm. brand. <laughs> You're ruining your brand. Yeah. Only so many t-shirts sell. Did you say Jesus? <laughs> oh, I said, hey, Zeus. <laughs> hey, Zeus. <laughs> Nice. All right. So that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you rate us on Apple Podcasts, we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 4 of the Dark Tower, Wizard and Glass, Part 1, Chapters 4 and 5. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Thanks.